Amen. Take a seat. It's a beautiful thing to not just come and have hear the gospel preached through the word of God, but to sing the gospel um, to and over one another, to be reminded through song. You know, it's something that the Jewish community did, the nation of Israel, as they particularly made their pilgrimage um, to the temple, is that on the, on the desert roads, as they walked as a community with all of the older people and all of the families and all of the children, as they went as a community, they would, it's, it's like in the Psalms, back half, back end, like 120s into 130s, the songs of ascent. And as they were ascending toward the place that God dwelt, they would sing um, hymns to one another to remind each other of God's goodness. You know, and as they were on a pilgrimage journey, so too are we. We are on this pilgrimage journey of life um, toward the moment and the time when Jesus does return. And the beautiful thing is that as a community, we get to do what they have done for generations and generations and generations, is to sing together as a community the goodness of God and to remind each other of his enduring faithfulness and to remind ourselves that, in fact, Jesus is the King and that he is in the business of resurrecting us, that there is a continual work of transformation that God is doing in our midst, and to be reminded of that as a community of grace and love and kindness and patience and compassion for one another as we work that whole thing out um, is a beautiful thing to be a part of. Well, we know that it's a new series time when new artwork goes up, and it's very telling, this one. The series is called The Book of Mark. thought we'd just keep it simple um, to do justice to what Mark's message is. A very simple message. Jesus is the King, and we should follow Him. And by way of introduction, let me give you a couple of um, things about the Gospel of Mark. Are you ready? Might be some fun facts in here. There's one in particular that I know that I love, and we'll get to it in a minute. But Mark is one of the biographies written about Jesus by a man called Mark, although his name is actually John Mark, but they did the Aussie thing, shortened his name, and just called him Mark. And Mark, unlike um, some of the other gospel writers, um, he was not a, one of the 12 disciples, but rather he was a, a disciple of Peter. In fact, Mark's writing is all written off of Peter's stories of what actually happened. And so most likely they, they suggest that the book of Mark was written in Rome to a Gentile audience rather than to a Jewish audience. And uh, Mark, John Mark, would have sat down with uh, Peter in coffee shops along the Piazza Navona or the Via del Corso drinking fine Italian espresso while writing down all the memories that came uh, to Peter's mind as he would sit there and Mark would say, tell me, what tell me what happened. And Peter would just be rattling off and he'd hit the stories of, you know, all of the healings and one thing would lead to another and go, oh, and then this person got healed and, and this person and Mark is just there busily writing down all of the bits and then Peter would have jumped somewhere else and gone, oh, let me tell you about the stories that Jesus told, these parables. And Mark's like, right, oh, tell me about them. And then he's writing them down. And um, so Mark is not so concerned with chronology as he is um, about talking about the action, about what Jesus Jesus did about the stories. Mark was the first gospel to be written and scholars suggest that Matthew, Luke and John used the gospel of 
Mark as their original source to complement their experience of what they saw and what they heard. That Mark was one of the first or the first gospel written um, that others then shaped their biographies of Jesus off. It's interesting that there is a unique cadence at which Mark writes. He writes with a clear sense of urgency. He uses the word immediately over 40 times in the 16 chapters of his biography of Jesus. And they say that he does so to um, highlight this, uh, the servant nature of Jesus, that he is at the, the beck and call of the Father, that he knew that he was um, this, the suffering king, the servant king. And so we get portrayed this image of Jesus who was hurriedly about the Father's work. I mean, coming off the back of our last series, Unhurried, don't allow that to get in the way of seeing the, the busyness and activity of Jesus as he went about the Father's work. And the gospel is about action of Jesus more than about the words of Jesus, the point being that Jesus is to be followed rather than just a topic to be studied. Uh, we know that Mark is a relative of Barnabas and he was present with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Um, however, only up until a point, and we don't know uh, what happened, but we know that um, John Mark took his bat and ball and went home. Um, something went down and he said, that's it, I'm not coming. He took his, his lollies and he, and he went home with him, chucked the tanty and disappeared, which actually ended up causing some uh, conflict between Paul and Barnabas because on their second um, missionary journey, Barnabas rings John Mark and says, hey, come with us. And Paul blows up, nah, not having it. He didn't come, he chickened out last time. He took his bat and ball and went home. I'm not taking it, he was a whinger. And, and so Paul and Barnabas, they blew up. They, just, they had a fight over the whole thing. But we do come to realise later, though, that in Colossians and 2 Timothy, um, that Paul says that Mark has been very useful to him. Um, and so there is indication that there was reconciliation of some kind and that there was an expression of how much Paul actually loved Mark in the end. Fun fact, Mark is the only follower of Jesus recorded to have done a nudie run. Don't believe me? Mark 14, 51 to 52, go and read in your own time. It's entitled, A Young Man Flees. And he doesn't name himself, but it is him. It's at the moment where Jesus is arrested and he's wearing a linen cloth. And in the, in the, in the heat of the moment, as he flees from um, the crowds arresting everybody, his linen cloth gets ripped off and he runs home starkers. I just love that. <laughs> Um, our friends from the Bible Project, if you've ever watched any of the helpful Bible Project videos, um, they give us some a great oversight. They talk about there being three acts, um, you know, as in like a, a, a theatre show or, or whatever, you know, that term acts, not the book of acts. Um, the first act is set in Galilee, uh, verse 1 to 8. And then fast forward to, towards the end where it's all about Jesus, the passion, Jesus' death and resurrection, and that's set in Jerusalem. And in the middle, um, the middle act is set in the journey between the two places, moving from Galilee toward Jerusalem. And the first act sets out to answer the question, who is Jesus? The second act, what does it mean uh, for Jesus to be the Messiah? And the third act to, uh, seeks to show how Jesus, in fact, did become the messianic king. And so all of that being laid out, Mark's point, in the end, is just follow Jesus. 
Don't worry about all the trappings. Don't worry about all of the religiosity that can enshrine this following Jesus. Just follow Jesus. And so we begin today in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 8, and it will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you, but if you're like Ruby, you've got your Bible right there ready to go. Mark, I read from the ESV, and it will be the one that is on the screen also. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. What an image of this guy. I mean, he's a prophet, and prophets are usually you know, pretty weird people. Um, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to even stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray as we dive in and unpack the word this morning. Father, we pray that as we launch into this time, Father, that we would see you clearly. And Father, as we dive into your word, Lord, that there would be a work of preparation that you do in each of our hearts, that you'd prepare us. Lord, to see you, that you would prepare us. Lord, to push away the things that get in the way of seeing you. Father, that you would prepare our hearts, do a work of softening and recalibration within us, that all of the other things would fall away and that we would just have a clear vision of who Jesus is and how he is to be followed and to be worshipped. And so, Father, may my words be quietened to uh, the voice of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak and we would hear you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Around 800 years ago, uh, well, 800 years before Jesus was born, rather, there was a king named Ones who reigned over the land of Nineveh. And Ones was married to Queen Semiramis. And through a series of unfortunate events, uh, trouble struck the king Ones and he died. And Semiramis took on the leadership responsibilities and she set out with great ambition to conquer the world. In fact, history records that Queen Semiramis took a journey from Nineveh to a place called Ekbatana, the site on which she would oversee the building of Babylon, the city that she would eventually become the queen of. And this is the journey that she took. And there's a map here, Nineveh up the top and Babylon down in the bottom circle. And this is the journey that she set out to take. However, as she and her entourage set out, they were met with the challenge of crossing the Zarkian Mountains, a mountain range in our modern day known as the Zagros 
mountains that were passable only by goats and the most uh, proficient shepherds and wilderness dwellers. I mean, these are the mountains that, that they needed to cross. No, no small feat. And standing back, assessing the situation, as her and all of the people with her thought, how on earth are we going to get over there? It became apparent that it was, it's so high, you can't get over it. Let's sing it together. No, let's not sing it together. So low, you can't get over it. So wide, can't get over it. This was a case of we must go through it. Much like these people standing at the base of the Zagros Mountains. I mean, they don't look all that too happy, if you ask me. Some of them are going, oh my goodness, how on earth are we actually going to do this? It would have been like if you and I were standing at the base of the Blue Mountains in the car park of Krispy Kreme at Penrith, looking up towards where Katoomba is, knowing we have to get to Mudgee or Orange or somewhere in the Central West. And we're staring at the Blue Mountains before there is roads, thinking how... On earth are we going to get through this? Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, he chronicles Queen Semiramis' march toward Ekbatana and he writes, She came to the Zarkean Mountains which extending many furlongs. A furlong is 201 metres for all you trivia buffs out there. Many 201 lots of metres and being full of craggy precipices and deep hollows could not be passed without making a great compass about. Being therefore desirous of shortening the way, she ordered the precipices to be digged down and the hollows to be filled up. This was not something new or unique to Queen Semiramis. It was common practice for Eastern monarchs that wherever they went on a journey or an expedition especially through barren and unfrequented or inhospitable country, to send heralds before them to prepare the way ahead, to provide supplies, to make bridges, to find fording places over streams and rivers, to level hills, to construct highways and causeways over valleys, to make ways through the forest which might lie in the intended path, of the line of march. And historian Alison Weir observed in the retelling of the life and story of Henry VIII, when Henry, when the king stayed at a private residence, one of his gentlemen ushers would go ahead of him to make sure that the house was structurally sound and that the roof did not leak and that there were locks on all of the doors. And so Semiramis, she sent out a team of people with hammer chisel, horses, carts, as luck would have it, a brand new Kubota backloader. And off they went. They did as they were commissioned to do and they brought down all of the high places and they raised up all of the low places. They made fords and they made bridges and made the way from Nineveh to Babylon so they could go unhindered. There's a name for the team of workers that prepared the way ahead for Queen Semiramis and other monarchs. And the name applied to the heralds that went before the ushers, before King Henry VIII. And these people were called 
harbingers. Everyone say that word, harbinger. It's on the screen right there, harbinger, harbingers. They were called harbingers. And a harbinger is not a word we use so much these days. So I've dusted off the old Merriam-Webster for you, and here is how she, she, I'm, I'm assuming Merriam-Webster is a, a person who wrote the dictionary. Um, anyway, that's beside the point. Um, harbinger, something that foreshadows a future event, something that gives an anticipatory sign of what is to come. Harbinger. Miriam's other uh, definition is one that initiates a major change, a personal thing that originates or helps open up a new activity, method, or technology. I mean, here's an example of a harbinger. I mean, towards the end of August, as the temperature of the soil begins to rise and as the daylight hours get longer and longer, there's a plant that throws out its flowers, signifying that spring is coming. And here's a picture of this plant. This plant is called the harbinger of spring. And the harbinger of spring is, as you guessed it, an anticipatory sign that a new season, spring, is coming. Yuri Gagarin, the first man to space, he was the harbinger of space travel. The Wright brothers, they were the harbingers of flight, the ones who prepared the way. The Oxford Dictionary articulates a harbinger as a person or thing that announces or signals the approach of another. Said simply, a harbinger is somebody who prepares the way. And Mark opens his biography of Jesus differently to Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark does not give any airtime to the family lineage of Jesus. He doesn't recount the events leading up to Jesus' birth. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' birth, the, the stables and the wise men. He doesn't tell us about um, Jesus' childhood history. Instead, Mark comes out swinging with a big right hook quoting from the First Testament, referencing Isaiah. Chapter 40, he writes, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the question that I found myself asking straight off the bat reading Mark was, what is it about what Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier that Mark felt would be so important for him to open his biography of Jesus with? And the answer to this question lays in a little bit of context for what was happening for Israel in 700 BC when the prophet Isaiah spoke this message from God. And this is not going to be an exhaustive history. At this point in Israel's history, they had been exiled from Jerusalem. We know that they were living in Babylon, far from their homeland, and they were taken into captivity. And this was for many reasons. Chief among them, though, that God was exacting his justice and punishing his people for failing in their fidelity to the covenant relationship that they had with him. The nation of Israel were called to extraordinary acts of love. The nation of Israel were called to be God's light among the nations. 
The nation of Israel were, as God had said from the very beginning at their birth, that they were blessed to be a blessing. But they had gone against God's call for them. They had forgotten him. Through the journey of their nation, they had made other idols abandoning God. They became just like the world around them. They had become, as the word says, a barren wasteland, failing God and the covenant relationship that they had with him. And it's into this context that Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah prophesies comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. I mean, this is pretty harbingery kind of writing. The uneven ground shall become level and all of the rough places become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I mean, this prophetic word was a word of preparation for Israel that came in the form of both comfort and correction. In the midst of their exile, while they were far from home, while they were scattered, while they were without hope, without knowing when and if they would ever return to their homeland, God speaks through Isaiah to remind them that the war within them and the war around them has ended and their sin had been forgiven. I mean, this would have been music to their ears. There would have been a great relief at the sound of Isaiah's voice as he prophesied this word. There would have been a collective big exhale. Oh, finally, this is coming to an end. We're going home. And while they would have felt the warm fuzzies of this promise, also upon hearing this word, there would have also been a deep knowing in the consciousness of the people of Israel, a reckoning with inside of them that things would have to change in them if indeed the glory of the Lord was going to be revealed to them and to all of the world. That yes, this is over, we're going home. But yet also at the very same time, a deep sense of needing things internally to be different. And for Israel to make the way for the Lord to come, for them to collectively see the glory of the Lord together, there was a work both of raising up and a work of bringing down that needed to happen. A work of internal recalibration. A work of clearing the land of their hearts a work of deburring the sharp edges of their lives. Now, Isaiah is speaking of what making the way for the Lord to come looked like. He is showing that how a people far from God can and will be brought near again. He is showing how those in captivity will find their freedom again. 
how those who will be who are lost will be saved, how those who have been rendered unacceptable to receive the revelation of God and see his glory will in fact together see the manifest glory of God. Isaiah is describing what making a way looks like. And without getting too poetic with it, as each person sat in their makeshift exilic homes in Babylon, hearing this word there would have been to some degree a somber mood. As each person considered the low parts of their lives, the things in them that needed to be lifted up, and what mountains in them needed to be brought down, and what uneven terrain in their midst needed to be dealt with, and what rubble on the ground of their lives hindered the coming of God among them. And the question I think we're left here to ponder is that are we willing to invite God into our hearts to do a work of preparation in order that we see his glory revealed? Because Mark is very big on this, on preparing the way for Jesus to come. Am I prepared to invite God into the low bits in me? Am I prepared to invite God into the depressed bits in me and the anxious bits in me and the fearful bits in me that he would lift those things up? Am I prepared to invite God into the prideful parts of me, the lofty parts, the arrogant parts, the self-important parts, that he would bring those things down in my life? Am I okay to welcome God into the unredeemed parts of me that through action or belief suggest that I am still in control of my life? Am I prepared to invite the Lord to take a walk in the garden of my life and to show me where all the weeds are and to, to walk with me as those things get pulled out? Am I prepared to allow the Lord to walk through the garden of my life to see the branches that do not bear fruit that he may cut those things off and throw them out, that I might become more fruitful? Am I prepared to let go of my biases and fears that I so easily hold on to? Am I prepared to see and know and worship God in the way he wants to be seen and known and worshipped? Or will I settle for projecting my vision and my wants of who I want God to be in my life? Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. You know, these words are about personal repentance and social reformation in the fashion that would honour King Jesus. God's timeless call to his people is about remaking the world as a place that is fit for the coming King. And this is the work of preparation. Now, would we allow God into the low parts? Would we allow him to touch the high parts? Would, he allow, would we allow him to do the work within us that is needed to prepare the way for Jesus in my life? And for us to re prepare the way in our community, and the way that we look after the poor and we house the homeless and we look after the widow and the orphan as those how we reach out to the most vulnerable of our community, are we willing to go there to lay aside all of our comfort and prepare our 
hearts and the way for Jesus to come. See, it wasn't for another 170 years after Isaiah prophesied this that Israel was in fact brought from, back from captivity and their temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. 170 years. That's quite some time for them to wait in limbo from hearing God's promise to then seeing it fulfilled. You think 170 years is long. It was 700 years from Isaiah's prophecy that the Son of Man actually did come. That God with flesh and bone on entered into the human story. 700 years for the long-awaited Messiah. And God only knows how long it is until Jesus returns again on the day of reckoning. And sometimes I think we fool ourselves into thinking that preparing our hearts to see the glory of the Lord and to see the full glory of Jesus at work in our lives is something that we can rush. Which makes me wonder, am I okay to trust God with the process of my preparation? Am I okay to sit with the discomfort of not knowing? Not having all of the answers? Am I okay to trust that God is working out his plan in the world and my life and there is jack diddly squat that my harassing of God or my very own soul will achieve? Making the way for the Lord to come in our lives is not a one-time event. It's not a race. It's something that I cannot dictate the terms of. It is, however, a daily decision to allow Holy Spirit to shift and to shape and to shake my life and my heart into the likeness of Jesus. Preparing the way for God to move in our hearts and lives takes radical trust and requires that our faith is in him alone and not in our efforts or our smarts to bring about transformation in our lives or in our world. Preparing the way for Jesus to do his thing means living like those who we read of in Hebrews chapter 12, who by faith did all manner of crazy things, who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the fire, escaped the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, they fled foreign armies, to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some of them were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for them. And I think in a world that has sold us the lie that we can have everything and have it right now, that would serve us well that the founding fathers and mothers of our faith were commended, not because it all worked out for them in the moment or in the end, not because they got their prayers in that moment immediately answered, but because of their unrelenting trust in their God, despite the proverbial poo suit that they walked through, they were commended on their faith, on their deep trust. And even though I can't see the end, even though I can't see how this is going to play out, 
you know, waiting 170 years and then waiting 700 years and then those who wait still eagerly for the Lord to return and make all things right. We can't see when that happens. We can't see the timeline, but God is inviting us to a place of deep trust that he is in control. Now, preparing the way for Jesus takes time. It takes patience. It takes bucket loads of courage. It takes trust. It takes faith. It takes letting go of control of both timing and of outcomes. And so will you give space to the preparation of your heart to see Jesus come in your life? Will we give Jesus our trust and place our faith in him as a church, not knowing what the future holds, not knowing what is next, knowing full well that there are the promises of God that we see littered through the entire record of Scripture that are for us and to us and we can hold on to them, but not knowing what that looks like and how that is outplayed in our lives, are we willing to place our hearts in a, place, in a posture of preparation for what is ahead? So we have Mark opening his account of Jesus' life with this ancient prophecy that is steeped in the history of Israel's own history. And then Mark introduces us to John the Baptist, who, as it turns out, is part of the fulfillment of that 700-year-old prophecy. He is the voice. Try and understand it. Crying out, making noise, and make it clear. (coughs) Sorry, had to do it. In the wilderness. He is the messenger. He is the one declaring, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John was the OG harbinger for Jesus. The one who was sent to make the way for the Lord. To in that community of people to bring up the low places and bring down the high places to remove the rubble and the debris and make straight the path for the Lord. He was the one who was foreshadowing Jesus. He was the anticipatory sign of who was to come. He was the harbinger of spring, the early flower signaling that a new season is coming. John was the one sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. And Mark gives us the story of John the Baptist coupled with Isaiah's prophecy to cause us to prepare our own hearts for the good news of Jesus that he is about to unload in the next 15 chapters of his gospel. And not only does Mark cause us to see the faithfulness of God across the plane of time, but he shows us through John's ministry what preparing the way for Jesus looked like then. And what did it look like? Calling everybody within earshot to repentance. This is what preparing the way for the Lord to come looked like. Mark tells us that all the people in Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to see him and be baptised. We don't know if that was like statistically 100% of people, but a lot of people from Judea and Jerusalem, from all of the neighbouring places, all catching wind of John the Baptist, all coming out to hear him preach, watch him baptise people in the River Jordan. And in first century Palestine, it's helpful to understand this, that there were many and various groups of people who would have been present. At a macro level, zoom right out, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. 
If we were to zoom more closely and go to a micro level, there were different sects among the people based on their religious worldviews and their values and who they thought Messiah would be. I mean, as John was declaring uh, the repentance of sins and baptizing people, you had on the bank some Pharisees. You know, these guys were the fundamentalists and the legalists. These were the people who studied the Word of God. They knew the Torah intimately. They'd even memorized all of the commentaries. They were very cerebral, very intellectual. They believed when Messiah came that he would be the greatest rabbi the world had ever seen. His ability to teach, they thought, would be absolutely astounding. He would know everything about everything. Next to the Pharisees, also present listening and seeing this were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the theologically liberal group of the community. They played the political game. Most of them were the Herodians. They saw gaining power through Machiavellian or cunning means as what they were to do. They believed that when Messiah come, that he would be a wise ruler, that he would be the one to rule over Israel and beyond the Pharisees and Sadducees, then next to them, you, well, not next to them, probably on the other side, the other bank, not near anybody else, was the Essenes because they were an isolationist sect. The Qumran community, which is where, from where we get our Dead Sea Scrolls that help corroborate our Bible, the Essenes were isolationists. The people that would only ever listen to Hope 103.2. Every preset in their car was done to the Christian radio station. These were the ones who would form the, the Christian-only sports leagues. We're not playing with those other people. You know, these are the, the people who wouldn't surf on that break just in case someone drops an F-bomb and, oh, my ears can't possibly hear that. Purity was their highest value. They believed that when Jesus came, he'd be the most holified of holy molies. And then back to where everyone else was, because the Essenes are way over there somewhere, the Zealots. These guys were the Dominionists. The Zealots, they wanted power. They wanted to set up a theocratic rule with God at the centre and everyone just kowtowing to him. For these guys, action was the thing. They believed when Jesus came that he would be a warrior king, that he would ride into town on his enormous imposing steed, lopping off the heads of all of the Romans and establishing his kingdom on earth. I mean, there were, there were many more beside these, but surely you can see some modern inflections in these groups in the way that we perceive and see Jesus. And each of these groups had a base level of fear that drove them. For the Pharisees, it was, maybe I don't know enough. For the Essenes, maybe I'm just too horrible. Maybe my junk is too acceptable. Maybe I just won't fit in anywhere, so I'll remove myself. For the Sadducees, maybe their fear was that I need to be better at manipulating people or I need Jesus to manipulate people on my behalf. For the zealots, I just want power. Maybe I'm too powerless to achieve anything of significance. And so there were fears that they were operating from. And I say all of this because we too must recognise that we have our biases. We have our way of seeing the world. We have our fears. We have our own values that we project onto Jesus in order to make him the kind of God we want him to be. In this moment, and with all of these different people, with their different beliefs, 
with their different understandings of Scripture, different ways of engaging with the world, different motivators, different ways of knowing and worshipping God. They were all standing around watching John baptising people and preaching a gospel that says, your upbringing won't save you. The tradition that you have come from will not make you right with God. Just because you know it all, you've read it all, just because your morality is above par, just because you don't associate with sinners in your life, just because you give to the poor, just because you went to Christmas, church at Christmas and at Easter, doesn't mean jack diddly squat. The way to true life and connection with God is through repenting of your sin. So get in, get dunked in this here water and become the new creation that God so wants you to be. And in this moment with all these different people, John was eyeballing them as onlookers. And I can imagine that as he was finishing baptising one person, that he'd just be eyeballing the crowd, hey champ, you're next. If you want to know true life, if you want to see the Messiah when he comes, you're going to have to let go of knowing all of the right answers. You're going to have to let go of being able to win every argument. You're going to have to let go of the fear that you don't know enough. Repent of that and be baptised. Hey, mate, you over there, if you want to see the glory of the Lord, you're going to have to let go of trying to gain power at all costs. You have to let go of the fear that you're no one if you're not a hustler. And to the self-isolator way over yonder, not wanting to be close to the others for fear of hearing them swear. Hey, bud. Hey, bud, you. Let go of thinking that your way is the holiest way. Your disapproval by distance isn't love. Insulating yourself from other points of view won't help you see the king. I mean, John is telling them all, turn away from that stuff. It's all a distraction from the truth. Come in and put that stuff to death. Come up as a new person. Come up washed of the grime of sin. Look to Jesus, just Jesus. Nothing else. Not the way you think it needs to be done or should be done. Not the way that you've been brought up to believe is the only way. Look just to Jesus. Jesus is all that matters. It's recalling people to repentance and into the waters of baptism. John is confronting the proclivity that humanity has to project onto God what we want him to look like. And I am sure that I do it too, of which I need to repent. The images and pictures of Jesus that I want, just so I can make God more palatable or face slightly more enjoyable or whatever the case might be. I've got fears that I need to repent of. There are ways of me seeing who God is and projecting my own vision of who he ought to be in my life. I need to repent. John's message was then and still is today through the faithful writing of John Mark, prepare your hearts for Jesus to come. Prepare your heart. Lay aside everything else and just see Jesus.
the one who was promised, the one who came then, the one who is coming again. Repent, be baptized, for there is another who is coming after me. I am not what you're looking for. I'll baptize you here with this H2O, but he will fill you, immerse you, and baptize you with his Holy Spirit. John, the original harbinger of Jesus in calling people to repentance and baptism, was paving the way for people to see him and receive them as his king. And by way of closing, I want us... Well, here's just a belief and from experience, is that preparing ourselves to see the glory of the Lord begins in repentance. Repenting of the ways that we do, in fact, project onto Jesus the way that we want him to be rather than allow him to be who he truly is. To, for us to repent of pushing our agenda and our timing upon God. To repent of kicking Jesus out of the driver's seat of our lives. To repent of how we've displaced God's priorities for us with our own. To repent of how we've neglected at times to be the light of the world. To repent of our neglect to care for the widow and the orphan when the opportunity has been there for us to do so. Where we've neglected to welcome the stranger and to love the outcast. Repent of how easily that we make life all about us and less about God and what he wants for our lives. The word says to us in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Repentance requires humility and humility combined with a hunger for God leads to healing. That we need to come it's an act of preparation to see the king. We need to come with humility. And when that humility is partnered with a deep hunger to see the face of God, Chronicles promises us that God will heal our land. Friends, would we come humbly before the Lord with a repentant heart for all of the ways where we have made it about other things than just seeing Jesus. Because I don't know about you, I would love to see this, this land healed. I would love to see my heart fully healed. I would love to see your life healed. I would love to see our community healed. And the example of Scripture says that if we humble ourselves and we seek the face of the Lord, that he will heal our land. <clears throat> it's a repentant heart that sees the Lord. And my heart over the next 16 weeks of studying Mark together is that we will see Jesus in amazing and new ways. <coughs> that we will see his glory fill our lives. That we will see his manifest glory fill our church and the nations. That we will see his power at work. That we will see the miraculous happen. That we'll see people set free from addiction and depression. That we'll be captivated again and again by the gospel of grace that we will see the life of Jesus and that our love for him and others would grow exponentially and that we'll see people in our community come to faith in Christ and discover true life and eternal life only 
in Jesus. And so for us to finish in this moment, for us to prepare the way for Jesus in our hearts, I want us to take communion. And as we launch into this Gospel of Mark, I want us to prepare the way for us to see Jesus for who he truly is. And as we take the bread and (coughs) we take the juice, we are reminded of the grace that has been afforded us in none other but God, that he would consider us and be so mindful of us, that his love and kindness would be so toward us and upon us, that he would give us the gift of his son, who would come and live a perfect and sinless life as he claimed and as he did and as others said about him. That he would show us the way to life and the way to live. That he would go to a cross and that he'd die a death that you and I deserved, but instead he took it upon himself. And he paid that price that we may come alive in him. That we would share in the resurrection in which he was resurrected. That we would then be recipients of the Holy Spirit to be empowered to live a Jesus honoring Jesus worshiping life all because of what Jesus did in giving his life for you and I and so I want us to take the bread and take the juice this morning and I want us to come in humble hearts knowing that that God of love and God of kindness is mindful of you right now and as we come and as we repent of the things in our lives that are perhaps the low places and the high places and the rubble and the debris that gets in the way of the straight path of the Lord that as we take the bread and juice that we place our faith in him alone and that the spirit would come through gently and kindly and he would move those things, that he'd bring up the low places, he'd bring down the high places, he'd clear the path, he'd deburr the rough edges of our lives, that we would be a straight path for the Lord, that even as a community together collectively, we would prepare the way for Jesus to come in this community around us, that his glory would be revealed to all flesh in Jesus' name. And so let's stand together. I'll invite the band to come um, up. And uh, as they play, I invite you to um, come down, grab a piece of bread and a cup of juice, and just take a moment just to come humbly before the Lord. Repent of any of of what God might be highlighting in your heart. And know that he is lovingly looking on you this morning, saying, your sins are forgiven. It is done, it is paid, it is dealt with. Now see me, see me for who I truly am. And so, thanks guys, come on down, take communion, and I'll jump back up and wrap up in a few minutes' time.